Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm pleased to welcome back to the programme Reverend Dr. Robert Bennett, who joined us a little over a year ago to talk about his book, I Am Not Afraid, Demon Possession and Spiritual Warfare, True Accounts from the Lutheran Church of Madagascar which, if I remember correctly, I think was the fruit of his PhD research in the field. But since then, he has written another book, this time turning his attention to the spiritual climate in the West, and specifically the United States, with his latest book, Afraid, Demon Possession and Spiritual Warfare in America, which is going to be the subject of our conversation today. Dr. Bennett is an international mission specialist dedicated to studying the topic of spirituality, including research into animistic beliefs around the globe, He is Visiting Professor of Missions and PhD Committee Advisor at Concordia Theological Seminary and Executive Director of Luther Academy, both based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Bennett, thanks for coming on again. Good to speak to you. It's wonderful to be back with you again. It's really good to have the opportunity to chat with you. As I said to you before the interview, I was sent your new book, Afraid, by Concordia Publishing House a little while ago, which is really nice because I really wanted to read it anyway and to have this opportunity of a second chat with you because I really enjoyed that first conversation about your research. So that worked out extremely well. And this second book... I find also very interesting, but it's very different. I mean, the first one was clearly an academic book, although it was, it was easy to approach. I like the way you wrote it, but it was an academic book. But this one seems to be aimed at a wider audience. So I guess the first questions really are, what was your basic intention with this new book, and why did you decide to write it in this different way? Well, after writing the first book, it was received very well. However, my inbox and uh, my email was filling up very quickly, and many text messages from pastors that had read the book and wanted to know more. And so I finally got to the point where I decided I should probably write this second book to give them those answers that they were looking to me for. And so it was really answering the question that the first book brought up. Mm -hmm. Have you found that the new book has had more of an audience than the first one? Oh, it's had quite a bit more of an audience, and we expected that. The first book was more of an academic book, and so a lot of people aren't looking for academia uh, in their reading, where this one is written for a popular audience, uh, really for any level, or whether it's a pastor or anyone uh, in the pew or somebody who's not even Christian. It's written in a very plain and simple way. And there are lots of examples, aren't there, both from your own ministry, but the ministry of others as well, uh, which you draw upon and describe in the book. Although I do notice that you're very careful not to name people. You, you give them pseudonyms, which is an obviously a very sensible thing to do in the book. But it's useful to, to look at those examples and think, well, these are real world examples of the kind of thing you're talking about. It makes it very easy for people to connect with those anecdotes. I like the way you've done that. Well, thank you. And one thing I added to this book that was not in the first book is at the end of each chapter, there are a number of questions, and there's a full answer list at the end of the book with actually quite a bit of new information that did not make the book because I did the answer portion after the book was already in the hands of the editors. So there's quite a bit even in the answers to the questions at the end of the book. So it makes a great book for study for study groups or even Bible study on a Sunday morning. Yeah, it does indeed. Actually, I've not even thought of this, but we run a a Bible study group, so perhaps we will work through that. That's that's an interesting idea. And I always like books that have the answers in as well, (laughs) because then you can know whether you're right or not. (laughs) 
Um, okay, well, let's talk more detail about the book itself. Now, one of the questions that really struck me in the book, let me quote from you, the Western world as a whole, and America in particular, is moving away from a scientific approach and returning to the realm of spirituality. The naturalism of our time is leading us back into the supernatural worldview. So I'm wondering if you could start this discussion by explaining what you mean by the naturalism of our time is leading us back into the supernatural worldview. Well, what's happening, we see in, in naturalism, of course, is an understanding of a closed system, uh, no miracles, no gods or anything like that to someone who believed in naturalism. However, um, there are more and more things that are coming up that people are searching for answers for. For instance, as they look for missing links and things like that to justify uh, various forms of evolution, they're not finding necessarily what they want. And so you have a, a huge subculture, especially here in the U.S., I'm not sure about in Europe, that is attached to simply like ancient alien ideas where they think that, okay, um, Aliens must have came and brought life here to the earth. And then what happens as they continue down this road and they start to do their research and what they call research anyways into this circumstance, uh, they find that the aliens are, are becoming godlike in themselves. The aliens are, are taking on the persona of gods with various powers. And so that's just one example of, of a naturalistic worldview that doesn't want to accept God miracles, but then now looks outside of the world for another scientific reason for the existence that we have here, but then, and not, I'm not saying everyone who does this will end up in this situation, but as you start to watch these things unfold, they really start to end up in their own uh, really religion based on aliens and other things as a result of this. That's just one example that I use yeah. The other would be the uh, paranormal researchers that are out there that are trying to answer the questions of ghosts and spirits and things like that, but they're using um, scientific or quasi-scientific uh, means to do so. And then so now they start talking about things like uh, residual energy, for instance. So they don't want to say there's a ghost there, so they say, well, there's a residual energy from somebody who was there in the past. Now, to be clear, I don't believe in ghosts, uh, but I'm just describing these phenomena. And there's a number of other areas as well. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it, how you can have this slipping towards uh, a spiritual understanding of what you're talking about by starting with something that doesn't have any personal attributes. Like you're talking about there, an energy, and you could start to attach personal attributes to that energy, and then you're into a more of a supernatural worldview. I mean, as you were talking, I was immediately thinking of Richard Dawkins, giving the impression that he thinks that, um, you know, the beginning of life might have to be explained in ways other than dark. Darwinism, so you'd have panspermia, the idea then that uh, this was spawned from some alien life. And I can Im imagine how then one could go beyond that and say, well, these aliens must be super intellects and then attaching divine-like uh, attributes to them. And I can see how that slippery slope can take place. I mean, what I find interesting, you mentioned modernism and postmodernism and how the postmodern is opening up people to believe pretty much anything they want to believe. 
Again, I'll quote from you. American culture is beginning to come full circle from naturalism stroke modernism to postmodernism, which leads to an openness to almost any possibility, with the exception of the biblical worldview. Now, that's interesting, because I'd have thought, if you're opening up to any possibility, why wouldn't you go for the biblical worldview? Why do you think that is, that people are open to, increasingly open to anything except biblical Christianity? Well, I think one of the tenets of, of postmodernism is I choose for myself what my reality and truth are. So while I may accept various portions of Scripture that align with what I believe to be appropriate, at the same time, I would not accept Scripture as the Church has through the years, that it's the divine inspired Word of God, that connection with that connects us with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and so it's this choosing of religion. So I could take some pieces of Christianity, but maybe at the same time I can go and take a few pieces of Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or any of the, the possibilities that are out there. The key is that there's not one specific doctrine or body of knowledge that I have to accept as true. My truth is individual. So you're not likely to go for a particular orthodoxy that already exists. You're going to take a little bit from here and a little bit from there, a smorgasbord approach. That does make sense. But there's one interesting thing that you say about this, that this religious syncretism that's going on does actually become a kind of dogma in itself. So people can have personal spiritual experiences while they're on this spiritual journey to, to find truth within themselves. And then so many people are having these similar personal experiences within themselves that eventually it becomes this dogma that they share together where it's all this same hodgepodge of faiths. It is. And while they share it together, they have different aspects of belief amongst them. But those aspects of belief no longer matter because each of us have our own personal narrative, they would say, and our own personal experience and make that point there, experience of these various faiths or these mm. truth claims that I choose to be true for me that might not be true for you. Do you think that it tends in the direction of oneness with a capital O? You know what I mean? Oneness. Everything is one. Um, well, yeah, of course, uh, because of that, some of the uh, Eastern religions, that would be the basis for those religions. And then, then as we incorporate these into our own plausibility structures, I could see that becoming part of it. And in essence, I guess it is too, because as you're losing any type of coherency, everything is, to a certain extent, a, a oneness. Well, one of the main contentions of your book is that a key characteristic of much of this post-Christian Western spirituality is animism, or the tendency towards animism, as per your research. But before we get into that, perhaps we need some definition of animism, because not everybody will have heard the previous interview. What would you say are the main features of animistic belief? Sure, whenever we talk about animism, we have to recognize that there's probably a number of different ways to view it, but I'll give the very general way. Hmm. Uh, the very general understanding of animism would be this, that there is a creator God that is disconnected from his creation. So he created everything, and then he stepped away. Yeah. On this earth, you have the living, and then you have those who have died, which we would call the ancestors, and then you would also have a multitude of other spiritually type of enemies, none that are actually evil or good per se, 
but they can act in either way if they choose to do so. So, for instance, if I'm an animist or one coming out of a traditional religion, it would be very important for me to venerate or even to worship the, the ancestors in the spiritual world because they're in this what we call a central tier or a central plane between us and the Creator God. And so if I want my crops to grow, for instance, uh, the ancestors and the spirits can help me to do this. However, if I don't properly venerate or worship them, they could also cause calamity upon my crops. Or, or personal sickness, for instance, they could bring on personal sickness, they could remove personal sickness. Uh, and so this understanding is you're not dealing with God, he's far and gone, uh, he can interact if he wants, but generally he doesn't. All of your interaction now has to take place with this spiritual world. At its heart, the word animism is referring to seeking power. You would seek power through the spiritual world, but you'd also seek power through various types of invocations to spirits or ancestors, or also um, through your own use of what we might call magic, of curses, of your own holy words that you speak. So do these spirits who are in this lower tier or higher tier, as far as we're concerned, this middle kind of tier, do they have any kind of relationship to that distant God themselves? You get various understandings depending on what group you're with, but there is that understanding that because they are in that higher plane, um, they have certain abilities in themselves, and they would have a much better access to that Creator God. Now, as we talk about this, of course, some of the things that should enter in our mind would be the cult of the saints within Roman Catholicism at the same time. I suppose that is a tendency in that kind of direction. And of course, this is something that you bring out in the book as well, which I called in my little bullet point here, Christian animism, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, really. But uh, you do observe this going on in the US and presumably in the West in general. There are some things that are practiced or attitudes that Christians have, which do seem animistic in some ways. What would you say are some of these less obvious animistic things that Christians are tempted to engage in? What's happening within Christianity, you know, one example I, I gave in, in the book yeah. was uh, this woman who was being um, terrorized by a spirit. She had heard that the Lord's Prayer is, in essence, a um, prayer of exorcism. Uh, in the Greek, it's deliver us from the evil one. And so uh, she thought, well, okay, this must be a powerful prayer, and it is when it's prayed by God's people to him. But what she did is she wrote it on little yellow, yellow stick-em notes, and she put it all over the walls, the windows of her room, and the doors, with the idea that this prayer written on the wall is going to then prevent any evil from coming after her. You know, this really kind of goes back to the old understanding of the amulets that people would wear for protection as well. There's some type of spiritual power in that thing, which is really one of the essences of animism as well. So the, the actual Lord's Prayer, you say the Greek is, deliver us from the evil one. And yet so often, nearly always, we say, deliver us from evil. Yeah, it was changed along the way. And deliver us from evil is still appropriate Mm. See, when, when people believe that there was a devil and there were demons and there was a real force behind evil, it's no problem at all for it to say evil because it is very broad in scope and, and that's a really good interpretation there. 
But when you live in a society now that most of the society no longer believes in, in a devil or, or demons or hell, or, uh, and we start talking about evil as just this kind of general force in the world, non-personal force, now it's better to remember and, and to teach, I would say, that the essence of it is deliver us from the evil one, which then includes all the other things that we're speaking about as well. Yes, indeed. Because it can just give the impression that it's deliver us or protect us from any bad thing, which is pretty vague. Right. So she was treating this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in fact, as a magical thing, really. You have other examples. There was one example where somebody had used salt as part of a prayer of exorcism. I think they'd had it stuffed around a bed or something. And your issue seems to be in the text that uh, you think there's a danger of falling into the trap of seeing this substance, salt in this case, as being effective in itself rather than merely functioning as a symbol of what God is doing um, in this prayer. Is that right? Have I understood you correctly there? Oh, yes, very well. Um, In this particular case, a pastor had been um, receiving visits, him and his wife, from a spiritual force of some sort. And in order to protect them in the bed, between the mattress and the spring, he poured salt all the way around the perimeter of the bed. I would say that's also an animistic practice. You know, he may have said prayers alongside of it, but, you know, salt is not, uh, while we might see this on TV and, you know, salt's going to keep the devil away, salt is just pure salt. And by giving it some additional power, even by adding prayers to it, is really leading into an animistic practice. And so I want to just clarify this a little bit. Uh, For the Christian, our focus should be Jesus, the one who promised to be with us, to never leave us, uh, the one who knows every issue that we are dealing with the one who is able to see everything before it it takes place, really even before the creation, uh, can see the entire creation laid out before him. And so um, anything that we would talk about animism is we're investing power in something that is an object or a false spirit rather than trusting in the power that Christ has already said is with us as his children. Yeah, I can appreciate the danger of going down that route because once that idea has really solidified in your mind, I can see how you can become more and more dependent upon more and more objects and take your eyes completely off God. I can see how that could happen. The only thing that comes to mind about this is what happens in Acts 19, where Paul is at Ephesus, and there are these handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul, and it says that they were carried away to sick people, and their diseases were cured, that evil spirits came out of those people. So, I mean, wouldn't you say, therefore, that the book of Acts does actually say that objects can actually have power in themselves? No, I don't think so. I, I think we could say that in the book of Acts... On this particular circumstance, there was. Uh, But that's where we get in trouble as we look at these biblical passages, and then we connect them to things that they were never intended to be connected to. So just because we have this one instance in the book of Acts, we, we should not then from that extrapolate an entire doctrine investing uh, spiritual power in in means and in ways that 
were never given to us to operate with that way. Yes, I take the point. So just because something does in fact happen doesn't mean that then becomes a law or a principle that we have to follow in every case. Right. And I think it would be very dangerous to do so without a, a divine word from Scripture. Because mm. even in that case, it doesn't tell us to go and uh, to do this now. It's showing that this is what happened in this particular case when, when you had a really specific circumstance going on here. You know, this is the uh, beginning of the Christian church. This is the spreading of the gospel through the apostles, who indeed um, you know, had abilities that the average person would not have because Christ had given them that authority as the church was growing. And so, like I said, to take that and then say, oh, well, now I can say a prayer over a uh, piece of fabric and people are going to be healed by it, I think is a wrong understanding. Now, if the Lord wanted that to happen, I mean, he could have that happen, but we still would not want to make a dogma on that particular thing. The other thing you have about this, because we're talking about how Christians can be affected by this way of thinking, you talk about spirit guides with respect to people who are into spiritualism. But what I thought about was, I've heard people in evangelical circles talk about their own personal angels. So not just angels in a general sense, but as if they have their own dedicated angel who's helping them with their lives, with whom they communicate. Do you think that's helpful or an unhelpful thing? Uh, I don't think that it's helpful uh, when it's taken to that extreme. I think as Christians, we can trust that the Lord has indeed encharged his angels to protect us, to watch over us, to do the will that he would have for us. But at the same time now, to take that and to move it to the point where I have a particular angel that I might name for myself, and now that angel is one who who comes to me and, and, and speaks to me, or one that I start to say my prayers for. So we see this uh, quite regularly. But once again, you know, as we talked earlier, uh, to make a new doctrine, a personal doctrine, or even for the church to make a new doctrine describing such things is once again a dangerous play, especially as we are warned that, that Satan himself would come to us to deceive us as an angel of light. And so and we can't trust the angels unless indeed they are talking in view of Christ and that which he's provided already for us in his word. Yeah, I must admit, I do tend to be skeptical of this kind of thing, because I immediately think, well, if somebody is praying to someone other than God, someone other than Jesus, then there's a good chance that that's going to get in the way of the relationship with God that we're supposed to be having. And just generally, that doesn't seem to be a very healthy thing to do. Well, and, you know, generally, uh, you know, I think of the first commandment, I, I think back to Martin Luther writing on this particular topic, and I think he made a very good observation that anything that we seek for protection, for enjoyment, that is really the focus of our prayers and, and our time, really becomes a God for us. And while we may not recognize that as a God, we're in a sense making it God. And so when we have a personal angel that we are describing for ourselves and praying to that angel and seeking help and comfort from that angel. Uh, in a sense, we've made that angel God. Now, we have the example, of course, in the book of Revelation where, where John um, tries to bow down to the angel and he's quickly told 
no, don't do so. I am as servant just as you are. Yes, it's a very helpful one to remember that. Yeah. You also speak from your own experience in pastoral ministry of, um, and I think you deal with this very sensitively in the book, some animistic tendencies coming out with Christians in sort of funeral situations where what they're experiencing goes beyond the necessary and healthy process of grief. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, sure. That is a big category. Um, as I was serving in the church as a pastor for many years, I would always stand by the casket before it was closed as everyone was going by and, and saying their goodbyes. As a part of that, of course, people would be adding things into the casket, which is not a bad practice necessarily, but it is when you start to think that the person is going to need something to read, for instance, while they're in the ground or, or whatever the case is. And so some of those practices, while they're fine, as long as they're not taken too far, are okay. But at the same time, they are trying to communicate and talk to the one who is was done, and they're doing so in a very loving and way of stating in grief, but sometimes you see these things really get out of hand. For instance, uh, someone may be grieving quite strongly, for instance, a lady about her husband who she's been with for the last 60 years, and um, she so much wants to talk to him that now all of a sudden uh, she starts to uh, report that he comes to her at night and speaks to her. And actually, this is a really common problem. I speak all over the country in the United States here on this. And always, every time that I talk on the subject, somebody in that audience gets very upset with me because they believe that their loved one is coming and visiting with them on a regular basis. And I am now stealing their hope as a result of saying that, no, this is not how things function. I mean, from a secular psychological point of view, do you have anybody saying to you, well, you know, this is a healthy thing, don't take that away from me? Well, I think that you you might hear that, and that's why I was very cautious. You know, some things are very healthy things, but when you now start to move it past that into an attempt to communicate for instance, with the dead. We have very clear words of Scripture, especially from Deuteronomy and other places, that we are not to be uh, necromancers. And all that simply means is we are not to be in communion, in, in contact, trying to seek those who, are, who have left uh, this life. The Lord gives a very strong command about that. And so while psychologists or counselors may think it's a fine practice, this is something as Christians we have already been warned about and we need to recognize. Absolutely. And we can be deceived, can't we, in our good intentions so often. It's uh, another trap there for us. Okay, well, for a moment, moving away from the Christian aspect of things, just looking at the U.S. culture more generally, you talk about psychic expose. And the thing about this, I wasn't so much concerned about the existence of such things. You know, people can display different kinds of spirituality to other people. And, of course, that in some ways gives us a chance as Christians to you know, set up our own stalls and witness. But what I, I found disturbing about what you described there in your book is this 
kind of blurring of distinctions between Christianity and non-Christian beliefs. You talk about people going to these things, um, describing themselves as reverent and um, of advertising holiday clubs for children that could be mistaken as Christian holiday clubs, offering, I think you say, star magic courses for children, which you might not notice unless you looked closely at what's being offered. I think that blurring of distinctions is really quite concerning. Yeah, that's why I talked about that. First off, I just wanted to bring this to the minds of Christians, maybe who aren't aware of what's happening, or maybe to help explain what might be happening to their neighbors or even their own family. So I went there and I spent some time at that uh, particular event. But uh, at the same time when I was there, I was just talking to people. I noticed that all of the mediums, for instance, carried the title reverend. And I wasn't sure if that was a self-imposed title or one that they supposedly earned. And it just Mm -hmm. so happens that I was made aware of a spiritualist seminary in uh, Indiana. And then I've also later heard of one in New York as well, where you go to this seminary to be a spiritualist, to learn how to communicate with spirits of the dead and other spirits as well. And then as a result of that, you then take on the title of reverend, just as if you were to go to any other uh, religious institution and maybe get a a master of divinity or something like that. So they're actually been trained in that seminary experience. I don't suppose you remember what the name of these seminaries are, but presumably they're likely to have Christian-sounding names as well. Oh, yes. I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm sorry. I don't know if I mentioned the name of the book or not. So we have this kind of parallel institution of spiritualism that is trying to look like the church in every way. In essence, they probably would think that they are their own church. They have a chapel at the seminary. And then they also have, as you had talked about, these vacation Bible school programs for children. I don't know about the case in Europe, but in the United States of America, Uh, There are many vacation Bible schools that are going on all over, and so a lot of times parents will take their children there, so they have something to do, kids to play with over the summer break of school, And, and some of the ones that I noticed were just that. They were vacation Bible schools that were put on by these ordained spiritualists. and those who followed them to teach the children how to cast spells and how to reach the spirits. And that was my point there is, you know, a lot of parents, uh, they're not real strong at looking into where they take their children. And so um, if you didn't look at this with a little bit of intensity, you might just think it was one additional Christian vacation Bible school amongst many. But really, now you've just taken your children to the spiritualist. Yeah, I'm so glad you put that in the book because it's so important for us to be discerning in this and not assume that the culture is the same as it has been for donkey's years. Things have changed and are continuing to change. And you say, in the quoting from you here, parents can no longer simply trust that what will be taught will be Christian. Even traditional churches are beginning to accept the teachings of the spiritualist movement. That sentence actually struck me. Even traditional churches, how is that manifesting itself? Well, I think it's happening because many of the people who teach in these environments, especially children, are being more influenced by the culture and the world that they see on their television sets and they speak with their neighbors than they are historically rooted in Christianity anymore. We we see this 
problem throughout our society where people are Christians, but really they could not tell you anymore what the basic truths of the Christian faith are. You know, the example we used earlier with those who, who are faithful Christians but now are at the same time trying to uh, communicate and to deal with lost people who have died in the faith, but yet because they miss them so much, now they probably don't even know that the Bible is very clear that this should not happen as a very dangerous practice. So what we see is in these teaching situations, the vacation Bible schools, and likewise, is we have many times people who really aren't qualified to be teaching the Christian faith in that sense, because their Christian faith is really a kind of a quasi-Christian faith anyways, because of their own lack of, of study and catechesis and likewise. Indeed, this is a reflection of the poor teaching that's going on in many churches, and it doesn't just leave a vacuum, does it? It sucks in something else, necessarily. Exactly. These people have to believe something, and they'll end up believing something that might be just complete rubbish and uh, pass it on to children. So we do need to be very careful. There aren't anywhere near so many of those holiday clubs in England, but they do exist, and I think we need to be very careful as well. Um, I think the most striking set of examples that you have in the book to do with how animism is affecting the U.S., of course, is voodoo. I'm not saying it's the most widespread, but it's the most striking. And uh, you did quite a bit of research on this, didn't you, going to New Orleans, and you even went to a voodoo temple and visited a voodoo bookshop and uh, had a good old look at how people were reacting when they came in and went out to the shop and how people were talking on the phone to people um, who were seeking healing. Um, do you want to tell us about what you experienced with all that? Sure. Um, if you want to learn about animism in the United States, uh, that's really the place to go because it's all over. And it's not just voodooism, but at the heart of voodooism is just animism. Uh, I mean, voodooism is just using the Roman Catholic uh, vocabulary, the Roman Catholic statues. But Behind them are really the African gods that they come out of Africa. So they, they look like St. Peter, for instance, but really it's one of the other gods or spirits that they're, mm -hmm. they're worshipping as they look to that particular statue. Oh, that's interesting. So you might have a picture of a saint, and yet in the voodoo practitioner's mind, it wouldn't be that saint. It would be something else. Exactly. That, that saint is actually standing in for one of the African gods. Okay. Would that be the same with, I mean, when you went to the temple, you saw statuettes of Buddha and Hindu gods. Would that be the same with that as well? It would be. Um, but once again, these things are very syncretistic too. So while they would have their own focus, it, nevertheless, they would also be open to additional idols, you could say, that were not really Christian in themselves. Like, for instance, you, you have the Buddha, but if you're praying to a statue of the Buddha, you're really involved in animism already right there. It's just a different form. And so the, the point of that spiritual temple was to be this general syncretized mixing of various religions, although primarily it was voodoo, uh, because voodoo takes all those various Christian aspects and turns them into animistic spirits. Mm -hmm. And so it was meant to kind of cover every possible um, gamut. And, of course, maybe if you go in there and you're a, uh, a Buddhist or a Roman Catholic or something like that, and you see right away, because this stuff is like right as you enter in, 
uh, then maybe this is a safe place. And then so you can venture in farther, and that's where the real spirituality, you could say, is meant to take place. Was this at the back of a shop, was it? Well, it was actually very interesting. You have to, the, the bookshop was very plain. Uh, there really wasn't too much in there. And I couldn't find the temple. And then I saw this young couple come in who spoke to what was the voodoo priestess about where the temple was. And she directed them to the back. And so after a few minutes, I walked back there and I couldn't find anything. It was just a big open courtyard, like it's very common there in that architecture. And so finally, I asked her, and after giving me a little bit of a hard time, she told me where it was. You actually had to go out into the courtyard, turn around and come in a different door that was only accessible through the courtyard. And that's where the temple was. And, and when I walked in there, I, I kind of remember as a boy watching the cartoons with, you know, the, all the uh, gold that's back. And, the, you know, the genie has all this gold locked up. And you go in there and you're swimming through the gold. And, and it was kind of like that. It wasn't gold, but there was money everywhere from all of the different offerings that people were, were placing there, seeking to receive blessings and cures. Uh, there was thousands and thousands of dollars, and I, I put some of the pictures of that uh, in my book. It was quite remarkable. I'm wondering, actually, whether I've come across some of those pictures on Flickr, because there seemed to be some... I, I think it said it came from that temple. Um, I don't know whether you recognize this description. It seemed to be lots of little ornaments uh, with dollar notes stuffed in and coins, and uh, it just looked pretty much like a rubbish tip with money. <laughs> yes, and like I said, I do have... Uh, like I think one particular picture that I put in the book was this fish tank, and it had the image of a mermaid in the tank. And then the water was the offerings, the money that was being placed inside of that particular tank. And then I also do have the other picture I took with some of the voodoo gods and also a depiction of Mary with uh, rosaries and dollar bills. So this is big syncretization of all of these things. It's interesting because the mermaid spirits are understood outside of the West to be really the, the most powerful and dangerous spirits that are out there. So it's interesting to see this altar. Now, of course, I don't believe in mermaids. I'm just talking about other people's beliefs. Yes, yes you mentioned that in the previous book, people's belief about the mermaids and how they were particularly frightened of those. And that's why I thought it was interesting to find the same thing here in the United States. Yeah. It's also interesting that... You know, you have these statues and pictures and they actually are for the veneration of spirits other than what they seem to be. Do you think there's an element of deliberate deception in that? Because you speak to the priestess in the book and you ask her about these altars and things. And then she says to you, wow, we cannot talk about that. If we did, the worshippers who come here would fall down in fear if they knew about that. Do you think she's being deliberately deceptive there? Well, I think all false theology is deliberately deceptive, and, and obviously she was. Uh, she knew very well. She was actually from Benin, and so she knew very well what she was doing there. She knew very well what those uh, various idols were standing for. But she tried to say just as a general spiritualism that anyone could then partake in because she did have, I said, some of the forms of Roman Catholicism related like the Pope, or Buddhism with the Buddha in there. But uh, when I confronted her on it, because I knew very well what it was, I've traveled or I've seen enough things that when I actually confronted her on it, she was quite surprised first that I recognized it. 
and then very worried that I might say something about it. And uh, I'm getting the impression that money-making seems to be a big part of this as well, because there was a lot of money in that room, wasn't there? Well, yeah, that's what's funny, though, about that is it looks like it's been there for a long time. I mean, there were thousands and thousands. Literally, everywhere you looked, it, it was green, so it appeared as if nobody had actually touched it. It must have been accumulating there for quite some time. Oh, well, I'll let her off the hook on that one. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that we are. I'm just no. saying it, it didn't appear yeah. that it was a fact. And not only was there money there, of course, there was personal belongings, you know, maybe it's people's rings or necklaces or uh, whatever they had of value on them to offer to the gods. Yeah. I suppose I thought that maybe that was a bit of a money-making exercise because one of your other examples was of a voodoo priest offering services, a kind of spiritual protection racket for somebody saying, you know, you've got to pay me so much money, otherwise this curse won't work or it'll be even worse and that, that kind of thing. So I was just thinking maybe that was central to voodoo practice. Perhaps not. Perhaps there are, like with anything, there are... Well, you know, I would imagine there has to be a money issue somehow to keep those kinds of things going. And I think a lot of times that is the case. But this was really it's kind of a special circumstance. It was very different. It was not in the central area of the city where all of the touristy type places are. It was really kind of off on its own. And you would not have known about it unless you had learned from somebody that it was there. So it was, I would say it was probably the most authentic of all the other shops that are there. And indeed, most of the shops that you will find where people are walking down the street are really not authentic at all. They, they are simply just money-making opportunities and, and so forth. Mm. Okay, well, the last dimension of this discussion really is the issue of evil spirits or the demonic. And this is one of the things that you show in your book, that a lot of this alternative spirituality, this dabbling in animistic beliefs and practices, does very often lead people to be affected in various ways by evil spirits. Um, So I think for the sake of people listening who might not be familiar with this way of thinking, could you explain why you conclude that? I mean, mean, just for example, somebody might say, well, why can't these dabblings just be superstitious and nothing else, just sort of self-delusion? Why should we think there's anything spiritual going on with this? Yes, and if you're not coming from a biblical worldview that's been informed by Scripture, I would expect that that's the response you would have. But of course, I am coming from a biblical worldview. I am an ordained pastor. I do read the scriptures. I I teach the scriptures. And so all of these questions are answered very clearly in the scriptures. Really, the scripture gives us two views of the world, I would say. And most people will think this is too simplistic, but I think it answers our circumstances. Now, you have all types of religions you can, you can go through and so forth. But in essence, it really comes down to two. One is that Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. He is the one we are to look to in times of trouble, in times of joy. Uh, he's the one we are to pray to because he's done everything already for us on the cross in the resurrection. In essence, there is nothing left for us to do. And then the other religion that's out there is a variety of things that we must do or actions that we must take. And so you can analyze any religion out there and say, is this truly Christianity or is it something else? For instance, in Ephesians chapter 6, 
St. Paul reminds us that in this world there are principalities and powers and evil forces that really are behind much of these things. He would also remind us to worship an idol is really to worship a demon because behind that idol seeking the glory is a demon. So we have a biblical worldview like that, uh, then it really comes down to one of two things. This is of God or it's of the devil. And I think most of Christianity through the history of time would have analyzed things in that way. However, as I said, as we lose our biblical understanding and we're led away to these various practices that sound very helpful, um, and maybe they are helpful as well in the short term for our own personal sense of being or, or comfort, but we're not looking for that short-term comfort. We're looking for that eternal comfort. And anything that takes away from that eternal comfort, I would say that it's evil and it should be avoided. And you say there's actually a big problem with uh, many churches, with pastors who are but they're either inexperienced in these kinds of matters or uh, perhaps they've had no seminary teaching on the matter at all, or maybe they're just sort of imbibing the spirit of the age and they're dismissive when it comes to anything to do with this kind of spiritual matter. So uh, that people feel embarrassed to approach their pastors for help when they think they might be oppressed by an evil spirit. How big a problem is that? I think it's a, a very large problem in just about every Christian denomination that you will find in the West. Uh, it's really not so much of a problem outside of the West because the people share a much closer biblical worldview. And so when these things happen, they recognize what they are. But for instance, I always go and I speak at churches quite often and many pastors will be there uh, along with their members for the talk. And, and I'll, I'll ask a question of the pastors. I'll ask them, raise your hand if you've been taught anything to do with demons or exorcism or, or the devil in any real sense in your seminary education, and there are never any hands up. And I asked them, they said, no, if we talked about this at all, we talked about it maybe a half a day in, in one class in our entire seminary education. So we're simply not being taught of these things. Now, I, I dealt with the reason that we're not being taught these things uh, in my first book. You might remember, uh, Julianne, as I quoted a Christian theologian from around 1950 or so, and he basically said this, that there's really three reasons that we don't, um, that we don't recognize these things anymore. And the first one is that we don't want to be seen as simpletons by our academic friends or even our personal friends. Yeah. And so even if we believe these things, we don't want to talk about them. We want to kind of keep them to ourselves just so we're not perceived as ignorant or crazy or overly spiritual understanding. The second point he made is these things really aren't something you put in the terms of scientific categories. And so if we're only going to talk in terms of scientific categories or naturalistic categories, really there's no place to talk about these things. And then, of course, his final point was something to the fact that evil does not understand itself as evil, even though, even as the stupid don't understand stupidity. Now, uh, this is way before the political correctness movement came in. He's writing these things, so maybe the last one is a little bit difficult to hear, but I think is he's right on. This is why pastors aren't taught these things. This is why pastors don't speak of these things in their church. And when pastors don't speak of these things that come up over and over again in the liturgical readings of the Bible, well, then the members are afraid to talk to the pastors because they think the pastor doesn't believe it. Yeah. 
and some of them are in fact encountering these things. And so when they find that the pastor is not open to listening to them, then presumably they can easily go elsewhere. I mean, you have an example of a family that I think it was had visitations, what they thought were some ghosts of some children or something. That's correct. And the church didn't know how to cope, didn't believe that such things could be anything other than a figment of their imagination, so they went to spiritualists for help. That's terrible. It is. Uh, the church could not answer their questions. Uh maybe was afraid to deal with it, and so they went off to a paranormal conference looking for answers, and of course what they learned is, don't worry, these are nice ghosts, and (laughs) things like that. Mm. You know, once that did find somebody that was able to deal with it, they received a blessing of their home, which in essence is an exorcism of the home, we just don't say it so crassly, and then after that, this problem that they had for 30 years was gone. Oh, I think it's been seven, eight years ago now, and they still not had any problem in the home. Before that, they were actually quite fearful of these things, weren't they? They weren't nice things at all. Well, no, it wasn't, that's why they said they were nice, but they were just acting like children, they thought. But they would rip the covers off people at night, Uh, They'd run through the house, they'd throw pots and pans. Sometimes they would see them, sometimes they would not. But I said all of that stopped just because a pastor went and blessed the home, which in essence was an exorcism. I suppose one difficulty with this, um, if you do accept that these things exist, if you're in a position of pastoral authority in a church, how do you diagnose somebody who is being affected by evil spirits? I mean, you know, there's the issue of mental illness and there's the issue of being oppressed by spirits. Um, How on earth do you do you distinguish between those things? A lot of times you simply can't. For instance, generally, I, if someone's seeing something in their home or something, I say it comes down to three things. It's mental illness. I mean, that's one of the places we start right there. Yep. It's the imagination that might be informed by whatever particular thing is informing the imagination. Or it's demonic. And so we, we have these three areas to deal with. And so we really need to look at Okay, what's going on? Is this are these people stable? Are does there appear to be any mental issues going on there, or easily misled into imagining things, or what's actually happening? You know, especially with uh, the possessed and those who are severely oppressed. I was just speaking at a conference this last weekend, and of course, the topic always comes up: Is this just simply a, a mental disease, or is it more? And how do we know? And my answer is, we don't really need to know, necessarily. I mean, it's very obvious that you see some of the very rare circumstances where, you know, someone is levitating or talking in strange languages and things like that. But that's yeah. that's something you generally don't see. Uh, generally, uh, the devil likes to hide himself. You know, he is a, a defeated foe. So we generally don't need to know these things. My point always is we should be dealing with the spiritual causes connected to physical and mental causes all the time. Uh, the Lord has provided vocation. He's provided people who work to care for us, to feed us, to deal with our, our issues. And we talk about them being masks of God, God serving us through the neighbor. And so uh, if someone is having a problem, they need to be at the doctor, or they need to be at the mental health professional. But the pastor or the church and the family at the same time need to also be with that person in prayer. And as a pastor, you can incorporate prayers of exorcism very easily. Just in the midst of the pray, when you're praying for the person's health or whatever's going on, you simply say things like, And uh, if there's any evil here causing any discomfort or struggle, be gone in the name of Jesus Christ and things like that. So there's ways to incorporate exorcism into things where people have no idea you're even doing it as a pastor. 
Yes, indeed. This is another thing that's in your book that I think is very important because a lot of the examples you have of exorcisms or you know, house exorcisms, they're really quiet. I mean, we often think of, I suppose we're informed by things like The Exorcist, aren't we? Lots of shouting and <laughs> weird manifestations of things flying around. But most of the cases you have in the book, very quiet, quite on the surface, unremarkable, really. Yeah, that's right. And at the same time, I don't discount that sometimes mm. these things can get much wilder than I recorded in the in these stories. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, when I did my study in Madagascar, there was screaming and yelling uh, that, that took part in the, in the exorcisms. One thing I, I think is problematic is when uh, individuals try to deal with demons or the devil as individuals. Uh, I think that's where a lot of the problem comes in. You know, for instance, as a pastor, if I think because I'm a pastor and I and I live a pious life that I'm somehow qualified to engage battle with a demon, you know, I'm in a real problem there. First of all, all that stuff is lies because uh, I can try to appear that way on the outside, but what goes out in the in the brain is still a sinful thing, and and the devil is very good at manipulating us. So I think a lot of the problems that we see in these very boisterous and, and problematic circumstances is because people are standing there as individuals in battle rather than simply uh, Christ being the one who's in battle. Do you know that's really interesting because that makes some sense of what Malachi Martin says in that interview with Art Bell because he talks a lot about all these manifestations that are going on and he talks about the exorcism as being the exorcist's will being in battle against the demon's will and i don't really like the idea of that it seems to me much more biblical to talk in terms of a proclamation of what jesus has already done you know resting upon god's power but you know with all respect to malachi martin he doesn't really talk in those terms he talks more about this battle of wills and what you're saying there <laughs> connects with that observation because nearly all the examples that malachi martin comes up with are these overt battles with things being smashed and going on for months perhaps and you know maybe there's a weakness in that approach well and and sometimes exorcisms do go on for months and even years but i do find a weakness in that approach because well there's it's a difference of theology right Uh, within roman catholicism the priest is attributed various aspects of holiness and character that i that i think are really incorrect I think all of us would agree that even if we can live a very holy life on the outside, that we are still struggling with sin all of the time. And so none of us are holy in ourselves. We might have an alien righteousness or an alien holiness that is Jesus who is covering and protecting us, but it's not one that's existing within us in our, in our very being as an attribute of ourselves. And so when I talk about exorcism throughout the book, the point is always, I am not an exorcist. And I would say that there's only one exorcist, and that one exorcist is Jesus. Mm. And so any exorcism that is effective is only effective because of his work that he's doing, not the work of the pastor or the priest. Now, of course, we are messengers who are sent to speak those words, but we're only messengers. The the messenger in the ancient time, he brought the word of the king, uh, but he, there was nothing special about him, but there was a very special things about the words that he brought as, as associated with the message. 
So is that what Luther is doing in his hymns? I mean, you have certain hymns here that you tag as exorcistic, and in fact you point to one, O little flock, fear not the foe, which is actually number 666 in the service book. Is that what Luther's doing there, sort of proclaiming what Jesus has already done? With Luther, I think I specifically deal with the mighty fortress is our God, but that other hymn is wonderful indeed. It's one of my favorite when dealing with this topic. As you had mentioned in our particular hymnal, it's hymn number 666. Is that just by chance, do you think? It is not. If you have a hymnal with more than 665 hymns, what do you do? Do you skip the 666 or do you just go to 667? Or And I think those who put the hymnal together did a wonderful service to us. They took what I think is one of the strongest hymns that mocks the devil and they put it at 666. Mm. You know, just quoting off memory, it uh, focuses on the devil's powers as a facade of like, you know, a movie set, but behind it, there's only two by fours holding up these supposed buildings. And a little wind comes by and it's going to fall down. But really, that's what the power of the devil is towards the Christian. It's a facade. We talked about this a little bit before the interview today, but I'm going to spend more time in the future book on that, looking at the facade of the devil's power while he's really lost his power, according to John chapter 12, at the crucifixion for Christians. Nevertheless, he still pretends to have power. He has that facade that he deals with uh, as a matter of lies and as fear he causes to individuals. There's a model, isn't there, with Luther of actually mocking the devil. But, I mean, that can be misunderstood. It's not sort of making fun, is it, from oneself, sort of na 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 and that sort of thing. It's more a proclamation of Satan's insubstantiality based upon what Jesus has achieved. Um, That's exactly what it is. People misunderstand that all the time. Uh, Luther never says that as an individual, you should make fun of the devil. Uh, once again, that's putting you in a very bad situation. But at the same time, you would say that we should go after the devil. Now, this is paraphrasing Luther, but I think it's good for all Christians to hear this. Luther writes about uh, a time that the devil was causing him difficulty towards the end of his life. And he was saying, Luther, look what you did to the church, the Roman Catholic Church. And, and look what's going on right now in the world as a result of that which you have done. And look at your own sins, how utterly disgusting your own sins are. And Luther's response is, is wonderful. Devil, of I've sinned more than a thousand worlds, so let it be. Christ's death is far greater. Go bother somebody else. And so he doesn't argue with the devil as an individual. He says, look at Christ. Because of that, you've got no right here. You have no reason to talk to me. I have no reason to listen to you. Christ has defeated you. Christ has brought me into the faith, has promised me whether I die or I live, I am with him, and when I do die, I simply go with him, awaiting that wonderful resurrection of flesh, so go bug somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I did like that. Uh, I suppose one aspect of the book which I found difficulty with, and I mentioned this before the interview, I mean, you know, I'm not saying I disagree, it's just something that I have to think through. I mean, you come from a very sacramental background, and I don't, and you talk about communion and water baptism and absolution, as having exorcistic qualities, having exorcistic functions about them. So how do you understand those sacraments as, as working in that way? I think first we have to make sure we have a, a good understanding of the word exorcism, or ekbalo in the Greek. It simply means to cast off, to remove, 
to push away. So it, it doesn't have all that you know, Hollywood spiritual connection to it in itself that we attribute to it. So all we're saying is when something is exorcistic, it has the ability to push away, remove that evil intentions, the evil thoughts, uh, and things like that. Well, coming from a sacramental background, uh, I would believe that when the Word is preached as Christ has provided it, He's promised to be there in the midst of that Word. So it's not just a historical Word, but it's a historical Word with the promise that Christ is there in the midst of that Word. And so if Jesus is there in the midst of that Word, and the mere fact that he is there already has a exorcistic uh, result where Jesus is the devil does not wish to be. And so the devil is, is removed. So that uh, doesn't depend then upon the faith of the person who is receiving the word or receiving the communion or receiving the baptism because Jesus is actually there in what is happening anyway, irrespective of the faith. Right. And the faith does come in. I'll, I'll talk about that, too. There are many different understandings of baptism, but we would say that even the act of baptism itself is not our work, but it's Jesus' work. The pastor is simply saying some words and placing some water, but he's doing so once again as one who's speaking on behalf of Jesus, who said to go and, and baptize. Same thing in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is there in his presence. But even if you're not from a sacramental background, I think most Christians would recognize that when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with you. And so we have this understanding that when we're in the midst of these things, that Jesus is promising to be there with his presence. Not that we could see him, but his promise still remains true. And if Jesus is there in his presence, all of this is having an exorcistic function on anything the devil might be trying to do at the same time. Yes, that is really very interesting. And I do need to think that through a little more because, I mean, coming from a different kind of background, then, you know, it did jar with me initially. But as you explained it more in the book, it made more and more sense to me and, uh, you know, fine to, to be challenged by these things. And I like the way you sum everything up. I'm not actually sure where this appears in your book, but in terms of the thought of your book, you sum this up, I think, with this sentence. During my research, it became clear that exorcism and spiritual warfare are more about catechesis than anything else. Do you want to just explain exactly what that means? I mean, many people may not even be familiar with the word catechesis. Sure. The word catechesis is just a, an understanding of teaching teaching the Christian faith, for instance. And this goes back to the point I wanted to make about personal faith and personal understanding of what's happening in the midst of worship, in the midst of prayer, and likewise. Well, I have this understanding that where that word is spoken, there is Christ in the midst through the work of the Holy Spirit. At the same time as we're now taught these things, what they do is they provide a defense for us. Because now I recognize that Christ is there. When I hear that my sins are forgiven in spite of what I may have thought or said or did that week, it gives us the ability now to sustain these attacks, not just with the presence of Jesus, but also in that mocking sense that we talked about with Luther. Because now I know 
Yes, it's it's true, devil. I have done all of these horrible and evil things. But yet I've repented of this, and Christ is faithful, and he's just, and he's died for me, and he's risen for me, so go bother somebody else. So there is an intellectual case attached to that earlier talk that we were having about the sacramental idea as well. But when we talk about catechesis, I made this point throughout the book, and we didn't really talk about that, but there's all kinds of very personal stories of people dealing with problems in the book, and I analyze each of these cases. And normally what has to be done, for instance, in, in the first chapter of this book, this woman of, who's kind of invited uh, voodoo priests into her home and having severe problems now, she believed that she was under what's called a generational curse, so she thought there's nothing that she could do. When we talk about catechesis in this sense, it's unraveling the lies of the devil. So, okay, what do you think this means? You have a generational curse. Let's unpack that and show that it's not true. Or any other false belief or, or thing that an individual is dealing with, catechesis teaching the Christian faith answers these questions, and at the same time, it removes the power of the devil and the demons because now they can no longer use this aspect of the attack upon you. Yeah. I like that so much, a proper grounding in the truths of the gospel being absolutely essential. So it's not essentially about commanding, shouting, struggling. It's it's that understanding of the truth with a capital T that really grounds you. Um, and I, I always think, when thinking of the use of the mind uh, within a spiritual context, I always think of the Spirit of God being talked about, particularly in the Old Testament, actually, as the Spirit of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. I think that's something that's not often appreciated. People often think of the Spirit as being something to do with, you know, touchy-feely kind of thing. But very often the spirit of wisdom, knowledge and understanding that very much connects with this being grounded in the truths of the gospel as a barrier to anything evil that can happen to us. Well, as a result mm. of that too, mm. uh, Julian, that earlier conversation we had about postmodernism and uh, the individual truth rather than the objective truth. And so we're already getting into this difficulty because we're losing the truth with a capital T, as you had mentioned, uh, and we're, we're replacing it with these false truths that really leave us open to great attack and to disbelief and false theologies all the time. Which is a fantastic place to end. Trust in what God has done for us through Jesus. And that is the truth in which we must indeed trust, not in ourselves, but to trust in what he's done. Well, it's been wonderful speaking to you again, Dr. Bennett. Thank you ever so much for joining us again today. It was uh, you know, very interesting last time. It's uh, interesting this time. You do get me thinking about some things which uh, you know I wouldn't otherwise have thought about, I do admit, um, such as particularly the sacramental angle on all of this, which I'll think more about. And that's one of the great things about doing interviews like this. You you get to uh, put yourself into a position where you have to take seriously some different ways of thinking at times. It's a very good thing to do. So thank you very much for challenging me and writing this book, this Dr. Robert Bennett's book, Afraid, Demon, Possession and Spiritual Warfare in America, is available, of course, from Concordia Publishing House. That's cph.org, cph.org. As is his previous book, which we talked about last time, I Am Not Afraid, Demon Possession and Spiritual Warfare, True Accounts from the Lutheran Church of Madagascar. And of course, I do recommend listeners to go and check out that previous interview from last year, which we had on that book, um, which was very enjoyable. Thank you very much indeed again, Dr. Bennett, for speaking to us on The Mind Renewed. 
Well, thank you for having me. I'd also like to point out that all of these resources are available on Amazon in Europe as well, so it might be easier to access that way. Yeah. But it's always very enjoyable to speak with you, Julian. Uh, I appreciate uh, how you deal with the questions, and I always look forward to having an opportunity to talk to you in the future. Great. It will be great to speak to you about your new book, which I think you mentioned to, or you told me the subject of it before the interview. I don't know whether you did during the interview. Do you want to reveal anything about that? Sure. Actually, this new book takes off with the last portion of our interview with this understanding of catechesis. The new book is going to be titled Fear and Lies, Unmasking the Devil. It's going to look at all the different aspects of our Western society and even animistic societies and show, depending on the worldview that you have, the devil is either going to put primarily a focus on fear so that he might control you, or in the West, primarily a focus on lies. It's always going to be a mixture of the two, but the primary one is going to pivot depending on what your worldview is. I mentioned John 12 in the interview, and John 12 says, now is the time for the prince of this world to be followed, to be cast off. And so the devil is the defeated foe. The only power he has over us Christians is that which he can gain through the activity of making us afraid or convincing us of a lie. Mm-hmm, the power of deception, indeed. Well, there are loads of things I could ask you immediately, but I won't. I shall hold off till next time, because I very much hope that you will join us to talk about that book when you've eventually finished writing it and it's published. So thank you Absolutely. again Thank you again for speaking with us. Great to speak to you. Thank you, Julian. Bye-bye. Bye.